I had a general view that, yes, we potentially over-incarcerate too many people in the United States, but for the most part, we have a fair justice system that is working and that good law enforcement is the pillar of a secure and free society. And on our journeys, we spent some time in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Detroit trying to better understand the criminal justice system and seeing it firsthand that leads to these spirals and and cycles of, of incarceration that really defy the American value of redemption and second chances. And so coming out of these trips, I changed my perspective on criminal justice. Welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders what they've changed their mind on and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, Chief Exec of the Depolarization Project. You've just heard from one of our two guests today, Jordan Blaschek, on how exposure to America's criminal justice system made him realize how broken it was. Jordan is the co-author with Christopher Hoare of Union, a Democrat, a Republican, and a search for common ground. But before we get to their interview, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our email newsletter at depolarizationproject.com. We promote the show with Open Democracy to the 8 million regular monthly visitors. You can find the back catalogue to our shows and more information on this episode at opendemocracy.net slash depolarizationproject. I'm joined for today's episode by my co-hosts, communicator and business thinker, Laura Osborne. Hi, Ali. And our behavioral insight expert, Alex Chesterfield. Hi, Alex. Hi, Ali. Hi, Laura. So what really stood out for you from this interview with Jordan and Chris, Alex? So for me, one really striking thing was what Jordan had changed his mind on to the criminal justice system and how effective or ineffective it is at reducing crime. So as a fellow conservative, albeit in the UK, I've been on a kind of similar journey. So I think my own views used to be much, much more hard line. But like him over time, and actually studying human behavior has made me much more paternalistic. And I've really begun to reflect on them. And what about you, Laura? What should listeners look out for? I think it was really interesting for us to hear Jordan's experience in the military. I think it gave us a really fresh perspective and one we haven't really had on the podcast before. And obviously, political conflict and violence in the field of war are very different things, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to be learned from the two considered together. His candidness about a time when someone he'd trained in Afghanistan shot a colleague was a reminder about just how high the stakes the encounters he dealt with were. It's something very different for our listeners to reflect on. And what chimed with you, Ellie? Well, for me, sort of with a more political background, it was Chris, who's a former speechwriter in the Obama administration. And he talks about the power of storytelling to both polarize and build common ground. The incentive for so in so many ways for how our brains like to think and engage with stories involves identifying an S and a them. So Star Wars fans, or even if you're not, it's hard to avoid it. Think about the dark side and the rebellion and how it's framed there. But it can make it really difficult for us to live in the grey and to embrace nuance. How he explores that, to me, that's really interesting. I can't wait to hear him talk about that. Well, let's give Jordan and Chris, who are both based in the States, a call. Jordan and Chris, welcome to Change My Mind. Thank you so much for having us. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to have you. So your book, Union, a Democrat, a Republican, and a Search for Common Ground, 
is a story of both your friendship and of a road trip across America. And really, it's America's story as well. Why did you write it and what did you find? Yeah, so we wrote this book after taking six road trips across the United States, covering about 20,000 miles and 44 states. And when we first started, these road trips were a lark. We had no book in mind. We just wanted to see the country and to deepen our friendship. And this was taking place right before and then after the 2016 election, when we found that American Americans just seemed to be driving further and further apart from one another. And the same was true for us. We found that a lot of our conversations were, were breaking down over politics. And so we wanted to kind of understand what was happening across the country. And over the course of these road trips, we found that we were meeting all of these people who were showing us something deep about American life and Americans. And we were also having these much better conversations out on the road. There was something about the setting, the natural beauty, and the time and space to have deep conversations that was allowing us to get past the partisan divide that we found ourselves kind of stumbling into and to, to get to something deeper that bound us together. And so ultimately, we decided that there was an uplifting story here that we wanted to tell. We wanted to share what we were seeing and learning about people across the country with a broader audience. And that's when the book was created. And I, I'll come back to the book in a minute, but Jordan, I, I know you anyway. We went to college or for our British listeners university together. And, and you do build this book as a story of an unlikely friendship. And unfortunately, because I know Jordan, I know that he's really lovely and kind <laughs> and thoughtful to people at the other end of the political spectrum. So I guess what I wanted to ask is if you really thought it was that unlikely that a, a Democrat and a liberal would get on so well with someone who was a Republican, particularly with Jordan. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, he is, you know, he's he's a, he's a wonderful guy, and he's he's easy to talk to. Although I do I do wonder if you guys have really gotten into it because he, he can be pretty good at uh, at partisan battle if he wants to be. Um, <laughs> but what I, I think a big a big point of this book is that there are thousands of Jordans out there, um, and that it might not seem like it, if not millions, you know, the, the and maybe not as as talented in so many other ways, but um, in in the oh, fact thanks, that. Chris. I got you, buddy. Uh, in, in the in the simple fact that you know there are people who want to dialogue, and there's people who are kind, and there and there are people who are welcoming and interested in understanding, and um, are complex thinkers. Um, you know, a, a, another point here though is that um, you know we we were lucky in that we were able to sort of isolate a variable. Um, you know, Jordan is open to conversation. Uh, I'd like to think I am too. Um, you know, we're both from California. Uh, we both, we have a similar educational history and that we met at law school. Um, but we are different across this partisan line and that enough, that one variable was enough to nearly break us apart a few times. Um, and the simple fact is that, uh, just that one variable was made this book difficult and, <laughs> and amazing and enriching. Um, but I can't imagine how hard it would be if, if there were other sort of important differences that we couldn't have, say, addressed right away, because we almost walked away as is. Jordan is kind and, and wonderful, but that's kind of the point. Jordan, I just, I wanted to get your take on that. Chris talked about the partisan divides at points, they really did nearly rip you apart. Is there an example of one of those for you? Did you feel the same way? Yes. And first, thank you all. Uh, you're being so sweet <laughs> to me. This is a great boost to my ego. Um, yeah, I think we, uh, there, there's this study that was done after the 2016 election that found that uh, almost uh, a fifth of the country lost a close friend over the election. And there's there's something about politics that has its way of of creating divides among even people who, who shared 
these deep bonds of friendship or family. And Chris and I found ourselves kind of stumbling into that over and over again. And I remember one fight in particular around uh, undocumented immigration. Uh, we were driving through the middle of nowhere in Nevada and somehow stumbled into this conversation about the president's rhetoric and uh, the issue of, of the border wall and undocumented immigration that just spiraled out of control. And we started leveling these very intense accusations at one another. And it, it led to this question in both our minds of, of why are we doing this? Why would I engage with this person? I don't even been know or trust this person anymore. And we didn't talk for a few hours. And it, it took time for us to to heal coming out of that fight and to reconcile. And do you think, I'm struck that, I presume you were still in the car at this point when you were going for a couple of hours afterwards. Do you think it actually helped that neither of you could physically get away from the other one very easily? <laughs> 100%. Uh, that's, that's literally the only reason I think that we were able to come back to the table um, is we were hundreds of miles away from the nearest town. And uh, I didn't, you know, neither of us really liked the idea of uh, walking across uh, a desert in Nevada, um, and that was really that was really um, informative for us. You know, in that we were we were forced to go through the process of, my God, I'm so mad at him. How could he say that? Well, you know, maybe I maybe I didn't say that right, or maybe I got a little too I got a little too hot. Um, oh, I wish I had said that differently. And I guess I could hear what he's saying on that point. And then maybe I should say something, and then eventually come back to that moment of grace where we say. Um, I love you, man. Or, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm still upset, but like, I love you. And let's, let's, let's try this again. Um, we were forced to go through that process and thank God we were, otherwise we wouldn't have a book right now. Yeah. And, and it sounds like it was very formative. And I'm just wondering about in the, in the broader context in terms of what's been going on in America since 2016, whether you think that how you guys found common ground then is, is replicable for other people. You know, because getting stuck in a car in the middle of the desert in Nevada <laughs> is not, <laughs> feels like quite an extreme place. And you two already knew each other and liked each other, right? Yes, that's right. We did like each other. We had this great early friendship going into this. And not everyone has the opportunity to get in a car and travel for all those miles. I think Chris and I were very lucky and we feel so grateful for the time we had and the ability to do that. But we do think there are some lessons that we learned on the road that anybody can adopt. And I think this is most important for people in their most valued relationships. So with your friends and family and the people you love and figuring out if there are differences, how to overcome them. And the three things we learned that were very helpful for us were first, that when you enter these kind of conversations, that if your intention is to win or to change the other person's mind, it's probably not going to go that well. We found that when we enter conversations with those intentions, it often turned into these tit-for-tat political arguments where we weren't actually listening to the other side. We were just waiting for our chance to score the next point or, or bring our own facts or data to bear. And those usually spiraled out of control. So instead, we started having conversations where we entered with the intention just to learn from the other side. And we found that in doing so, it made our own positions better. It made our own views stronger, more reasoned and nuanced, and it led to better conversations. Second, we realized that a lot of our assumptions about the other side turned out to be wrong. And usually when we looked at someone as a Democrat or Republican and assumed that we knew what they would think on a given issue, our assumptions misled us and led us into arguments that we shouldn't have been having because we were defending our party as opposed to articulating our own genuine beliefs on the issue. And so having that humility to say, you know, I don't know what this person believes deep down and I, I want to take the time to understand. So I'm going to ask questions and really learn how it is they see an issue led to much better conversations. And then third and finally, 
we stripped away the labels. We learned to identify each other, not as Democrats or Republicans with beliefs motivated by partisan ideology, but instead as the deeper identities that we both carried that mattered to us. So for me, it was as a Marine. And I wanted Chris to understand my perspective, having served this country overseas and viewing it through those eyes. And similarly, I learned to see Chris as a journalist and someone who who grew up in, in Berkeley and grew up around activists his whole life. And it gave me a much deeper appreciation for why he approached issues the way he did. And taking those three lessons, we were able to have much better conversations. And we think everyone can do that. That's really interesting. Before I pick up on your time as a Marine, Jordan, I just wanted to ask you both, when you were writing the book, I was really struck at the start that you made quite deliberate decisions about how you were going to write it and writing it very much as a story. Did you do that so that people could take more for it from it without you know, immediately trying to disagree or pick a side? Was that quite a deliberate and conscious decision? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I believe that story is one of the most powerful mechanisms for uh, imparting lessons. Uh, you know, I was, I was a speechwriter uh, before I went to law school, before I met Jordan. I, I guess I still am recovering speechwriter, some might say. And uh, everyone in that profession agrees that if you really want to get something across, make sure you got a story to tell. Make sure you've got an anecdote. Make sure you're able to, you know, abide by the principles of great literature or a uh, good film, you know, you've got beginning, middles and ends, you've got characters, they develop, they, you know, they, they have to get around obstacles because that's just how human brains work. You know, we, we, we desire story, we desire a narrative. And, you know, the, the, the other truth of the matter too, is that we really wanted to write a raw book that shows uh, the ways in which we made mistakes, uh, the ways in which we tried to correct those mistakes. Uh, because I think it's really important that people understand that, uh, you know, the pursuit of common ground or any pursuit really is, is, is messy, um, that you're going to, you're going to, you know, fall down and <laughs> you're going to have to correct mistakes and you're gonna have to learn from them. And that's, that's human too. You know, it's as human as, um, wanting to be told a good story. Um, and so, you know, often I think on these, when, when you're out promoting a book, you know, you, you have these lessons and these lessons are, are really, are really powerful, but I think it's important to know the process um, by which we got to those lessons, because then you kind of can understand you, if you show your work, you can understand, uh, how hard one they were or, um, you know, the ways in which they, th there is nuance to them. So, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the story is the most, um, I hope it's the most compelling part of the union. That makes sense. And also when you get to the conclusion of the book, I think telling it that way helps you share some quite profound observations about what we're like as humans. You know, obviously you've seen people from 44. I know, I know you were trying to get to 45 states, um, <laughs> but you know, some quite interesting points there about how destructive we can be, but also how hopeful. And I, I think you bring that to life, you know, very, very much in the way Thank that you, you tell it. So, Jordan, going back to uh, your time as a Marine and doing tours in Afghanistan, I wanted to understand a bit from you on what you'd learned from that period of your life and how that informs how you engage and find common ground. And, you know, indeed, whether there are lessons from that that could be applied more broadly. I think there were two major lessons I learned from my experience overseas. The first informed my view going into these road trips, which was that we were going to find hopeful signs for America wherever we went. I had this deep faith in the American people, and I was excited to show Chris what we would find. And a lot of that was 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 from my experience as a Marine, where 
we would take these 18-year-olds from all across the country, from every different background, socioeconomic class, race, religion, and we would bring them together. And it was never pretty. Uh, they had fights with each other. They had conflicts. They were normal, kind of disruptive 18-year-olds. But then you brought them overseas and put them into life and death situations. And I was always in awe of what these these young men and women could achieve and how they would come together to to accomplish the uh, the incredible. And they they did that and risked their lives for people they didn't know. Uh, they would go out of their way to protect men and women, uh, Afghans who who uh, they didn't know. And seeing Americans do that, you can't help but have this deep faith in the American people that there that there is something special about who we are that our young men and women would be willing to do that overseas. And I expected to find that across the country. And so the Marine experience really shaped my view going into going into these trips. And as we get into in the book, I started out as an optimist and Chris started out more skeptical. But in the end, we kind of reconciled to, to this point where we acknowledge that there are these deep structural issues we face as a country and they're, they're challenging. And yet there's amazing people on the ground who are working every day to make their communities better. And, and that left us both hopeful. And so I think that was really informed by my military experience. The, the second lesson I learned uh, I was an advisor to the Afghan army. And so my job was to embed with Afghan units and to, to, to get them to a better place through persuasion. And that had to happen through forging these, these intimate bonds with the Afghan army soldiers and leaders. And we spent months doing that. And what I learned from that experience was first that you can connect with anybody. Uh, it's just a matter of of being open to it and making the effort. And second, that especially breaking bread with people. So sitting down together over meal, a meal or tea uh, has a way of bringing down all barriers and getting to the human, human side of, of each other. And Chris and I took that on the road and we, we tried to, to meet people where they were and forge these instant connections by just being, uh, being open to it. And often they invited us into their lives and we had meals together and we formed these really deep connections with, with people we otherwise had nothing in common with. And, and so I think that lesson from the Marines also translated really well. Jordan, that's really interesting. I'm going to, I've noticed for both of you that you're quite like look for the light in the dark sort of people. Um, and I agree with you. And that's an important part of storytelling is what I'm sure we'll come back to. But occasionally I think it's it's really important to look at the dark as well. And I, I wondered, Jordan, if there was a time where that approach in Afghanistan actually, if it when it didn't work, and if that was the case, why it didn't work on those occasions? Yes. Well, that, that's that's certainly true. Um, the, the biggest threat to American soldiers uh, and Marines that year in Afghanistan were green on blue attacks, which is when an Afghan soldier turns and shoots at at one of the Marines. And uh, that year, I was in Afghanistan. I think there were there were somewhere around sixty American deaths from from green on blue attacks. And the the unit I was training when I left Afghanistan a week later, the per, the Marine who replaced me was shot at by one of the Marines by one of the Afghan soldiers I was training. And so that was that was a near miss in my life that that could have ended very differently. And you know, I think the the takeaway from that is, um, you know, you could get along with ninety nine percent of people through that method, but there might be one percent who you don't, and that is dangerous and there is dark. And Chris and I 
left these road trips, I think humble about about the fact that there there are these really dark spots in America at the moment and deep problems to be wrestled with. Um, and yet, I think coming out of it, we we wanted to focus on the light because uh, too few people uh, in the in the media and um, and in on social media are are doing that. And so th- this book is really pointing to the fact that the vast majority of Americans are good, decent, warm people who really just want what's best for each other, for their communities, and uh, for the country. And and that's what we we wanted to point to. Thanks. Well, you guys are good. I, I'd never heard that story before, and I've spent hours <laughs> in the car with Jordan. So. I, yeah, because I wanted to come back to where you talked about storytelling, because we've done quite a bit of thinking about that and how that might contribute to polarization. And particularly one of the most common narratives is around a hero's journey and making people the hero and how that actually makes it quite divisive as a storytelling piece of rhetoric, because it's really hard once you lionize someone to spot their faults or for them to admit that they got anything wrong. And I just wondered, given your experience, if you had any reflections on that. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I love these questions. Um, yeah, I, I think the the hero's journey is a, I, this might not be the right way to put it, it's kind of played out. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a narrative that has been propagated for a very long time. And, and what's difficult about it in this day and age is that we all know how complicated um, we are. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, there's no, it's no surprise that, you know, our favorite heroes on TV or film or in books now are sort of anti-heroes. You know, they have tragic flaws. Um, it's because the world is complex and it's because uh, telling a story of a, of a hero is inauthentic if that hero doesn't have to in some way, you know, overcome a shortcoming of their own or, or you know, some sort of, like I said, tragic flaw. Um, you know, again, that goes to that goes to sort of our philosophy of this book. You know, we decided to write it um, with with our internal dialogues and also with um, the sort of uh, ugly things we said to one another for that very reason. Uh, you know, we're not we're not we're not experts in common ground other than you know we took these trips to try to sort of uncover lessons about it. Um, you know, we made mistakes. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that's I think it's um, uh, and I think it, it plays into into our politics, which is um, you have to be authentic. Um, to break through today. I mean, everywhere we went on the road, um, people who ended up talking about politics felt really uncomfortable with Washington and our leaders in Washington because they, they sense this tinniness, they sense this like inauthenticity um, that, that they did feel in people like Donald Trump in certain circumstances or, or Barack Obama or, you know, Bernie Sanders, these sort of outsider perspectives that aren't kind of, they don't, they don't sound like talking points or that they were forged by people like me. Um, and so I think that that's, that plays into the, the sort of falling apart of the hero's, the hero's journey. You know, I think, I think we need a, we need a different paradigm um, if we're going to sort of capture uh, the stories of the 21st century. And I think we're starting to see that. I think if you look around our media, um, stories are getting more complex. There's more voices. There's different kinds of stories. And, that, and that's really encouraging. Is there an example of one of those stories that's really stuck out for you? Um, I mean, a specific story. I I mean, I've been reading about, I mean, I I just love that there's just new voices in the media, for example, like um, Wesley Lowry or um, all the writers behind the the 1619 Project. And, um, you know, those voices were not in our media not that long ago. 
Um, so that, that's one example. Um, you know, I, I would also say, I mean, I come back to Barack Obama, my political hero, who, who told a very different story about America through a very different perspective. I know that's kind of old hat now. We've, we've known about him since 2007, most of us. Um, but like, that's the story about America that is extremely complex, um, you know, has its twists and turns, isn't linear in the, in the sort of traditional like JFK political sense. Um, and, and I think you're just seeing it more and more in how we tell our stories and, and also how the media um, tries to tell the story of America. And I suppose my final question for you about your time in politics is, you know, clearly you work quite close and personal with people when you're the speech writers. Was there any times when you saw a politician change their mind about something that, that left a mark on you? What was it? Yeah, I mean, I, I should be honest, I was a grunt. <laughs> I was a happy <laughs> grunt. But I will say that part of my job was kind of keeping uh, the secretary's history because he wouldn't always have a chance to, you know, sit down with us for two hours next to a fire, you know, pour a drink and, and talk about, you know, what, what brought him to that moment. And so I spent a lot of time like living um, as much as I could in his shoes, trying to understand, you know, what experiences were formative to him. Um, and one that came to mind uh, that comes to mind just now when you're talking is, is his time with John McCain um, in trying to reopen and, and, and forge a lasting peace with Vietnam in the nineties under Clinton and how formative that was for, for Kerry watching, you know, McCain go from, you know, a man who was a POW who refused to go to be released, um, you know, to be the, the last one out, um, you know, to, 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 to harboring all these, these, um, these feelings about that war to being, um, one of the leaders of, with, with Kerry and Clinton, uh, of the movement to, to, um, you know, put a, put a stop to the, the, the sort of simmering hostilities over, over decades and how, um, powerful that was as a, you know, as a lesson to, you know, Kerry, who was, who had fought in the same war, um, and had, um, come out of it on the opposite side, feeling very differently, uh, about what, what were the, the right ways to, to handle that issue. But both of them came together, uh, talked for hours. I mean, that's a really important part of that story that they, they had these long flights together where they're able to talk about their experience and how they came to what they believed. Um, and they both decided that there was one solution to this, which was getting together and working to, you know, to find a lasting, a lasting peace that worked for all sides. And, and McCain took some, took some fire for it. You know, he, he, he stepped out and, and said, I believe in this, in this mission at a time when that was unpopular. And, you know, Kerry tried to do his best to have his back and, and they worked together. And, um, you know, I, I, to me, that was, that was a really formative story, not just in how I look at, um, the secretary who I, who I have a lot of admiration for, but also how I, how I, you know, talk with Jordan. I mean, I think there's something to, um, you know, hearing those stories. I mean, Jordan just told me a story about, told us all a story about his, uh, his service that I'd never heard before and, and listening and, and, and trying to figure out where someone's coming from. I think that's so powerful. And so now I'd like to ask both of you the question that we ask everyone who joins us. And perhaps if I ask you first, Jordan, about a time you've changed your mind on a substantive issue and what it was and why. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think the issue that comes to mind for me that came out of this book was my position on criminal justice reform. I think going into these trips, coming from a military and law enforcement background, I had a general view that, yes, we potentially over-incarcerate too many people in the United States, but for the most part, we have a fair justice system that is working and that good law enforcement is the pillar of a secure and free society. And on our 
journeys. We, we spent some time in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Detroit trying to better understand the criminal justice system. And seeing it firsthand, I got a much better and deeper understanding of how difficult it is to actually have a second chance coming out of prison. And the, the set of tripwires that are laid for people as they exit that leads to these spirals and, and cycles of, of incarceration that really defy the American value of redemption and second chances. And so coming out of these trips, I changed my perspective on criminal justice, and I've actually made it a big part of, of my day job now. Uh, I work for a foundation that that tries to use technology and talent to, to solve big societal and global challenges. And I convinced uh, our founder to, to make criminal justice a uh, criminal justice reform, a big pillar of, of what we're doing, uh, given my experience, because I do think it is, is, it is one of the main areas that I saw in American life where the, the, the practice on the ground is so far from, from the ideals we, we have as a country uh, that, it, that it's time for, for uh, a lot of reform. And, and that, would be, that would be the big shift I had in the last few years. And in the work you're doing now, how much has those sort of stories, firsthand experience, change of perspective uh, had an impact on how you approach what the solutions might be? So I think I think the way it's affected it is first in in just humanizing the issue. I, I think uh, in, until it's humanized, it's, it's very hard to have a sense for uh, the policies and the technology that actually impact people's lives, and it's easy to to abstract to this sort of higher uh, policy level discussion without understanding how difficult and complex it is at, at the ground level and therefore what empathy is needed as we as we go about to reform it. I think more importantly, from a, from a practical perspective, um, so often the, the policy discussions or the efforts around criminal justice reform occur uh, uh, with, the, with the solution in mind from the beginning. And uh, to take for an, for an example, um, there, there's an organization that is trying to use better data uh, to, to promote criminal justice reform. And they, they did so without actually going to talk to the people who day-to-day -day actually have to manipulate the data and figure out you know, what, what measures uh, to track. And in doing so, they spent tens of millions of dollars with almost no result. Uh, because in the, at the end of the day, the data they did have wasn't actually useful in any meaningful way. And I think that that similar story happens all the time when reform efforts or nonprofits get involved on various things. And so it has led us to take a much more user-centric perspective. And whether that's the, the frontline person in the criminal justice system who, who is day-to-day -day responsible for decisions, or it's the person coming out of the system who's faced with these complex uh, array of challenges in front of them and, and, and doesn't know how to navigate them, um, all of our solutions try to begin with that, that user perspective in mind and then figure out what technology or policies can be, can be developed in order to, uh, uh, to allevi alleviate some of the problems. Thank you. Jordan, you've been extremely modest there about the person whose mind that you changed, which was Eric Schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one who has to call that out. I was just like, come on, like, that's quite a big, I know you're really like humble and I can almost sense you blushing. So I'm going to keep going. Um, but you, you know, you changed the mind of the guy who founded Google about what he was, how he was going to spend his money on criminal justice reform. And I think that that's deserving of a little bit more praise than you might've just given yourself. 
so to be fair, Eric, Eric was uh, was very open to it already. I, th- I think it was it was something that he uh, he kind of knew he cared a, a bit about. And once once I kind of laid out the 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 strategy we could take, he was he was immediately on board. So I, I didn't I didn't really do that much. Jordan, do do Marines blush? I can't remember. <laughs> can't see the blushing underneath all the camouflage paint we usually have on so chris i'll come back and ask you the same question perhaps you could tell us about a time you've changed your mind on a big issue and and why you changed it and what happened yeah um i'm gonna talk about one that's a little bit new for me so um you know maybe you guys can help me think through it but i you know i started my journeys with jordan um, a huge believer in the power of journalism. Um, I was the kid who was reading all the president's men over and over again and had Bob Woodward as on his, as his background to his phone for years. Um, you know, I, I, all I wanted to do was, was be part of a newspaper and, and, and do the work that I thought was sort of, um, uncomplicated and that it was objectively good. And while I still feel that way, to a large extent, Jordan and I have had these long conversations about um, the ways in which uh, the media is sort of unaware of its own bias, of the ways in which it's kind of um, falling down on the job. And, you know, I was quick to dismiss it as, you know, oh, you're, you're talking about, you know, Fox News or, you know, some far left organizations um, or, you know, that's just conservative talking points or, you know, I had my dismissals. Um, but through time and, and, and you know, with, with Jordan's, um, you know, very, very powerful arguments, I'm starting to see um, the ways in which the sort of object, the, the principles of quote unquote objective journalism um, are not as sacrosanct as uh, they may have once been. And I hope they will be again, you know, I'm seeing the breakdown of uh, what we call church and state, you know, the, the difference between opinion and reportage. Um, you know, it's now a critique that's, that's being carried forward, albeit in a very different way by young minority reporters who are who are pointing out the flaws in the system and the ways in which these you know there's been mission creep at at places um these legacy institutions um and i'm seeing that crisis in the media now and while i think the solution is a doubling or tripling or quadrupling down on these these hard-won lessons of great reporting whether it's you know um going to the scene talking to as many people as possible setting aside your personal biases as much as you can um, even in the context of unconscious bias and all we now know about it, I think it's still a, a, it's a beautiful mission. Um, and then abiding by, you know, fact checking and, and hard, you know, these hard principles. Um, that said, I, I, I am starting to see the ways in which journalism has to adapt and journalism has to change in this new world in which information is democratized and pretty much everyone can be that sort of old school journalist with their notebook, you know, going out and talking to a source. Um, there has to be, uh, a reckoning. Um, and, you know, I've gone from very sort of dug in, heels dug in. No, 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 there's nothing wrong. Just just look at these reporters. And, you know, that's the heart of the movement um, to really understanding that, that, that all journalists, including myself, and I, I'm sort of a, a unique kind of journalist having been in government and, uh, and now writing this book with Jordan, but, um, but I, I still believe in it. And I think that there, there needs to be, um, there needs to be some soul searching done. And, and, and Jordan really helped me sort of eventually see that. And you talked about a reckoning there. I wonder how do you think that can move forward? How do you think you can find a set of principles that work for the world as it is now that still has the integrity 
that you would have associated with the original rules, if you like? That's a really good question. I mean, I would point to the conditions under which, you know, that sort of solution can be found. And that is a sort of wild, diverse press, you know, free press where there's so many different voices. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of our system and you know, the first amendment and the way we've kind of designed this freewheeling, um, you know, uh, marketplace of ideas where, uh, you know, you can go to the times or you can go to Breitbart and you have to choose. And I, th- I think that, um, you quickly sort of start to see in those sorts of conditions, new voices popping up to the, to the front, whether it's through like blogging or having your own Substack. Or whether it's uh, you know a big legacy institution has has sort of seen the importance of this new voice and bring it in, and I, I think the natural conditions for finding it are there. It's going to be bumpy, um, but I think the most important part is making sure that all those voices are in the conversation. And what I fear is that we are becoming um, myopic in our understanding of journalism and you know who should be on an op-ed page or or who should be reporting. And um, I think the the louder our conversation is, the better. And I know that that. I mean, maybe not the louder, but the, but the, the, the larger the chorus, um, the better, um, is really where we're going to find a solution. And that, that actually might not be all that popular in opinion right now. Um, but I, that's, that's where I think we'll come to those solutions. Do I know those solutions? I don't think so. Um, and I think that's a lesson of union that Jordan and I gathered, which is listening first is like really powerful. There's so much information out there. There's so many different perspectives. It's impossible as like a soul. Uh, you know, hero <laughs> to uh, to take it all in and to understand it and say, I know what's right. And the more you're listening to Jordan or the more you're listening to, you know, Wesley Lowry or, you know, all of these really powerful voices out there, um, the better chance you have of coming to the best solution because it's <laughs> it's an impossible question for one person to ask and answer. Excuse me. Everyone can ask it. It's hard to answer. Um, and so the more the more voices you have, the better. And just to pick up on that, you talked about a lot about listening to, to Jordan and to other people. What did Jordan say that changed your mind on this? I mean, I, you know, another one of our lessons is keep coming back to the table, that there's not one conversation or one place that you're going to like solve a problem or, or, or convince someone, of, especially of something that they hold so, um, so dearly, like I do, like, you know, as I said, like, you know, this is something that formed my first sort of perspective on, on, uh, my career philosophy. So, you know, it was, it was a series of, of events, you know, it's introducing me to, to his quiver of podcasts that he listens to. Um, it's sending me articles, it's, it's listening, you know, letting me like argue my way through uh, a problem, um, and asking probing questions. Um, you know, it's hard for me to pinpoint a, a single, a single moment. Um, but we've had, I'd say, man, Jordan, what do you think? I mean, hundreds of conversations about media and the role of media in, you know, a, a functioning democracy. I mean, it's, it, it, it is a long process. Yeah. And we haven't talked too much about the people that you wrote about in your book who you met when you were on the road. Were there any of those who changed your mind about um, anything or that, that had left a particularly profound impact on you? You know, I think we, we met so many people who each impacted us in, in various ways and and changed our minds uh, on various things. I think one that that's coming up for me right now is uh, uh, this musician in New Orleans we met, who Chris had met on a plane years earlier, and they had somehow stayed in touch. And we decided to go to New Orleans because we thought there was something special about music and art that brings people together in a way that no other kind of facet of, of 
of life can do. And so if we were going to explore that, New Orleans seemed the best place to do it. And I remember sitting down with, uh, his name was John Michael, and we we sat down with him and sort of explained our, our idea to him. And he just started riffing about it. And he said, you know, the, the reason music is so beautiful is that there's nothing dualistic about it. You could come at a tune from any direction and love it for your own reason. There's, there's no right way to love a tune. And he, I, I think he said it, I can't remember, but the, the lesson we took from that is, you know, one of the challenges we face right now as a country is everybody has this very dualistic sense of, of who we are. Uh, as Americans. So, you know, you either believe our history is good or you don't. You either believe uh, that Black Lives Matter or you don't. You um, think Trump is a racist or you don't. And it's so dualistic. And yet, when we look at the country, having spent years on the road uh, trying to understand the American people and to understand each other, I think what we came to was exactly what John Michael said about music, which is you can come at this country from an infinite number of directions. And it doesn't really matter why you love it or don't love it. All that matters is that you engage as as, as part of the American project. Um, that's sort of the beauty of of this country is that it is an ongoing project that we all get to be a part of, and uh, everybody has their role to play in in moving it forward and moving it towards a more perfect union. And I think John Michael just perfectly captured that idea and changed, I think, how Chris and I uh, looked at the country as well. Thank you. Um, final question from us is, I, I'd love to hear from you and Chris, I'll, I'll start with, with you this time, about someone you'd love to hear from about a time they changed their mind on an issue. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this uh, uh, a lot over the last 24 hours. And um, you know, I think initially my, my thoughts went to people like George W. Bush and, and uh, Barack Obama and, and that sort of thing. And as I thought about it more, I, I think the one person I would be really interested to hear how they've changed their their mind on something is Clarence Thomas. Uh, Clarence Thomas is a Supreme Court justice who probably has the most consistent record in terms of how he approaches the Constitution and looks at issues. He's a textualist and an originalist, and he never deviates from it. And he's also very tight-lipped on the court. So it's very rare that we get to kind of see inside his mind and how he's looking at an issue. And, and so given that sort of almost three, four decades of consistent consistency, I would love to know if he's changed his mind on something and what it was. That's a fantastic. And, and you're right. Like, if you are someone who's super consistent and thoughtful and have a strong philosophical rod, then is it, does that make it easier or, or less easy to change your mind? That's a, a great call. And Jordan, same question to you. Who would you like to hear from about a time they changed their mind and why? Oh, yeah. Um, so... I, I I wasn't sure that we were going to talk so much about artists. So this actually is it works works pretty well, I think, with the themes of what we've been talking about. But um, what I'm, you know, I I think there's a long tradition of like political courage and um, you know stepping out and doing doing the hard thing. I mean, whether it's you know Kennedy's profiles and courage or or um, you know various works of art about you know that sort of theme. I think it's out there. Um, I'm really curious how other disciplines um kind of come at an issue like that like i'm i'm very interested in how the artist changes their mind i mean i think one of you said i can't remember who it was something about how it's it's so hard to live in you know uncertainty and, t and tell a good story 
I think that that's like, that's the work of the great artist is how to, how to say something within all this uncertainty, all these unknowable answers. So my answer would be someone, you know, like a, a modern, um, artist of great renown, like someone like Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, I would love to hear how someone who created there will be blood, <laughs> uh, thinks about issues and gets to the point where they're convinced that they were wrong or that they need to change their mind on something. I think it looks very different than say, um, you know, a politician going out and saying, I've, I, I was wrong, I need to change. Um, so yeah, that, that would be my answer. Thank you. Um, Laura, do you have any final questions? I just wanted to thank you both very much for sharing such thoughtful answers with us all the way through. Well, thank you so much for having us. Before we discuss, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Mary Fitzgerald, Editor-in-Chief at Open Democracy. We exist to bring you the latest reporting and analysis on social and political issues around the world. We're here to educate citizens, challenge power and encourage democratic debate, just as this podcast does. To find out more about us or to make a contribution to our work, visit opendemocracy.net. So now we've heard the full interview. Was there anything you wanted to reflect on, Laura? Yeah, there was so much. I think Jordan's modesty in how he influenced his boss, Eric Schmidt, of Google's fame, mind really stood out to me. You know, when business leaders reach that level of success, it can be even more difficult to talk truth to power and to give clear advice on how they should use their power and influence in a way that really makes a difference. So, you know, I thought Jordan's real skill, which he undersold himself, actually, was the cogency with which he put his case. And I wonder if that's something that his military training will have helped to prepare him for. It was really refreshing also to me as a Brit to hear his voice as a Republican come across so thoughtfully. You know, I'm always struck by the enthusiasm of Americans, the American nation. You know, it's not really a tone you hear from uh, us weary Brits this side of the pond. Yes, I think when you've been managing gentle decline for many decades. It's sort of refreshing and slightly jarring, isn't it? But having been here for four years now, I I have to say I find it slightly endearing. I wanted to touch on Chris's reflections on the role of the press and media and polarization. He made reference to the 1619 initiative by the New York Times, which I really hard recommend to listeners and we'll include a link in the show notes. It documents the history of Americans since the first slave ship arrived in 1619 and features wonderful writers of color telling stories and perspectives that really should be better known. To me, it's obviously a good thing that diverse voices are telling a more complicated and painful history. And the role of the media is to help the powerless hold the powerful to account in exactly that way. However, the project's experienced quite a significant backlash. And I'm not totally sure the press has got round to work out how to facilitate discussions from marginalized groups and the reckonings that come as a consequence. It's, it's really, really difficult. Yeah, I was struck by that too, when people's worldview gets challenged, a near natural, almost automatic response is to try and protect our own views. So I think a lot of the time, well, actually, it's not not just me that thinks that evidence suggests that we find all the flaws and counter arguments in the information when we read it that goes against our own beliefs, which means actually at the end, we will miss a backfire effect because it ends up strengthening our own initial beliefs rather than moderating or changing our own minds. Listeners may be familiar with the backfire effect, but there is more recent research showing that even though people can sometimes update their facts, they find it harder to update their beliefs. So there's this wonderful study done by a US academic uh, called Gaines and, and his colleagues 
using panel data collected over the, the duration of the Iraq war. And they show in the study that Democrats and Republicans updated their factual beliefs as conditions changed in the war, but they interpreted the same factual beliefs quite differently, meaning that both Democrats and Republicans maintain their quite polarised opinions throughout time. So, for example, whereas nearly all Democrats interpreted the failure to find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq as evidence that they never existed, Republicans, on the other hand, inferred Iraq had either moved, destroyed or hidden the weapons. So the, the key message was that although people may update the facts about the objective reality, it doesn't mean they update their fundamental beliefs. So I think coming back to Chris and Jordan, this is one of the challenges to projects like the 1619 work. So although they're really important and they, they must happen, they're not likely to be clear sailing. And we'll put some links in the show notes for some of the studies that Alex just talked about and details for how you can buy Jordan and Chris's book. Have Jordan and Chris inspired you to think of a time you changed your mind and why? Our next episode will be a special listener's edition of the podcast. Email alison at depolarizationproject.com and tell us about a time you've changed your mind. The best response will get a copy of Chris and Jordan's book. That's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Change My Mind. If you like what you heard, don't forget we have a fallback catalogue of fascinating interviews with leaders. You can find them all by searching Change My Mind in your podcast app. Thank you to Open Democracy for their support of the show, to Caroline Crampton for editing, and to Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real, is our theme music. <laughs>